The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife. Save the environment. Save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. And good morning. This is Our Wild World, and today we're bringing our conversation a little closer to home. We usually talk about wildlife. Today we're going to talk about our domestic animals, dogs, with Dr. Pete Coppolillo. I first met Pete in the early 2000s when he was working in landscape ecology in Tanzania with the Friends of Ruaha Project and where he invited me for a visit and a wonderful stay at their camp by the Ruaha River. Over the years, we've kept in touch back and forth on what each of us have been up to and various projects. Then we met up again a few months ago at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Ivory Crush in Denver and I found out he was now just a couple states away and working in Bozeman, Montana. He's now the executive director with Working Dogs for Conservation and that dogs are a whole lot more than just man's best friend. And right then, I knew I had to learn more. So today, we have the pleasure of having Dr. Pete Coppolillo join us. Welcome, Pete. Thank you, Ellie. It's fun to be here. It's great to have you. So um, we have a lot to talk about today. We're going to get into the actual workings of working dogs for conservation. But why don't we start with just a little bit of background of, of about who you are so our, our audience can learn a little about you, and then we'll sure. move forward. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm trained as a, as a biologist and, a, and an ecologist, as you mentioned. Um, actually, my undergraduate degree was in biology and environmental conservation. And just as a little side note, what my undergraduate supervisor was one of your previous guests, Mark Beckoff. <laughs> um, so he got me off in the right direction. Um, and uh, then I, 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 in graduate school, uh, became a landscape ecologist, studying the relationships between uh, spatial patterns and ecological processes. And, and that is a good, it's a pretty good lead-in for doing conservation because um, how protected areas are configured and where animals go and, and all of those things uh, factor into how we do conservation. And so from grad school, I, I, I got a job with uh, the Wildlife Conservation Society, and it was an opportune moment in, in, in that organization's history because um, we, we were working on developing a framework for how WCS did all of its site-based projects around the world. So I was based in New York for, for three years doing that and, um, and collaborating with the projects out in the field. 
And from there, I decided I, I, I wasn't really ready to stop being in the field. So I, um, in 2003, uh, started the Raha Landscape Program for, for WCS. And, and that was the beginning of our, our relationship with, um, with Friends of Raha, who um, had a, a great um, uh, conservation education program and, and got kids involved and brought kids into the, um, into the park, uh, many of whom you know, lived right literally on the border of the park and had never seen the inside of it. And so um, I, we did that for, for uh, a number of years. And then when that project had a few years of funding in the pipeline and, and I had a great staff and they were doing great things, um, and as my kids were getting a little older and uh, homeschooling in the bush was becoming a little, a little uh, less than what they needed, we made uh, the jump and came here um, to, uh, to run the Greater Yellowstone Program. Um, and so I did that for a couple of years, uh, still, still with WCS. And then, um, and then it, it was actually the beginning of my relationship with working dogs was, was in Raha when I had a student there, um, who, uh, who needed to find out about, um, cheetah and wild dog in particular. Um, Raha at that time was probably the third largest, um, uh, population of wild dogs in Africa. It might've been the second. We, we didn't, we knew very little about them. Um, and for a lot of reasons, handling wild dogs wasn't allowed in Tanzania. And so we started working on other ways to find out information on dogs and on wild dogs. And one of them was scat detection dogs, um, using domestic dogs to find, uh, their scats, their poop. Um, and then when I came here uh, to to, um, to Greater Yellowstone, we had a, a large project that had been going for five years, doing exactly the same thing with um, with wolves, both species of bears uh, and mountain lion and wolverine in the Centennial Mountains. And so I was I, that that was when I really got deeply involved with it, and and um, I was hooked. You know, thinking of all the possibilities, and and. Um, I joined the board, and then when the organization got big enough to have an executive director, I uh, sort of trepidatiously put my hand up and said, "Can I do it?" <laughs> and here we are. So, wow, it's, that's it's, it's fascinating. That that's that's a lot of history and a, quite a journey. So, sticking with this subject for a little bit, you've written many published articles in very well recognized and peer reviewed forums, and also co-authored an excellent book and one which I've read, by the way titled Conservation, Linking Ecology, Economics, and Culture. So that's that's a big thing that goes back to your academic as opposed to and, and tying in with the field work. Can you um, – you you explained a little bit in this in the history that you just gave us um, how these are connected in in the real world and in terms of how you put all these things together from you know your background and the academic learning to actually implementing into a field project and it, I guess maybe the more important question here is why it's important to link ecology economics and culture if yeah. you could just give us a little bit of that and then I think mm-hmm. we want to get into talking about the dogs. Yeah, yeah. Well, it you know it's one of the things that makes uh, makes conservation a lot of fun. Uh, I I think as as you demonstrate, it makes for good uh, good podcasts too because <laughs> conservation takes you all over the map. Um, you know, at, at one point I remember I, I made a list of all the different issues and things that I've that I've worked on, and in in the course of doing wildlife conservation, you know, and and it leads you to crazy places. Um, you know, in like in Raja, 
we worked on water and that and because of that we had to learn about irrigation canals and we had to learn about engineering and construction and we also had to learn about rice and and why people grow rice and why they want to sell it out of season from everybody else and you know even if you're very focused just on wildlife um, it very quickly takes you into these these other worlds you know and here in 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 greater yellowstone we think a lot about you know disease water issues are paramount you know land use planning um a colleague of mine said you know the future of the west is in the hands of county commissioners and so very quickly we're talking about zoning regulations and all these things and every now and then i scratch my head and go how did i get here (laughs) but (laughs) That's that's it because wildlife you know wildlife don't really know where they're supposed to be and where they're not supposed to be and they're wandering all over different kinds of landscapes and that leads us into legal realms and you know we ask why do people do what they do well often that's economics you know often it's culture it's it's a cultural tradition or you know people's livelihoods and their aspirations and what they they want out of their lives so really you know and I, I think everybody who does conservation for a living and does it on the ground recognizes is that 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 you're constantly uh, moving across those you know those disciplinary boundaries, and so we 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 often you know get excited about conservation doing biology, but once you get into to doing conservation, you learn you have to do a whole lot of other things too. That was an absolutely beautiful answer, and one that our wild world is really working to help our audience and our listeners and people to understand that when you're talking about wildlife conservation, as you had just said, animals go where they need to go. Um, the conflict arises when they're going where we want to be or using our resources. So conservation really is about people and that's a point that I've really tried to get across on our wild world. So when we talk about conservation being about people and how people can work into a landscape non-invasively to find out more information as our high-tech grows, but you're going back a little more low-tech and using (laughs) an animal... I mean, in the field, a little more low-tech, using an animal to help you work with conservation. So tell us about Working Dogs for Conservation. Why was it founded, and um, how does it work? Yeah, yeah. Well, you're exactly right. Um, uh, It's it's about as old of technology as as you can find these days. Um, Working Dogs for Conservation was founded by four women who were all uh, wildlife biologists. And all of them were um, dealing with the difficulties of working with with wildlife, um, primarily carnivores, um, <clears throat> and and some of the constraints of of handling animals. Um, you know, back in the day, the 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 way you learned about something was you catch them and you put a collar on them and you follow them around. Um, and and we got tremendous really important um, data and insights on wildlife doing that. And, and we always will. Um, I'm always careful to say just because we offer a way to monitor animals non-invasively, it doesn't mean that there, there isn't a place um, uh, for capture and handling. There's, there, there, I think there will always be a need for that. But it's, um, it's, uh, it's not, um, it shouldn't be the default. It shouldn't be the thing that we go to first. Um, partly because there are a lot more people out there on the landscape doing um, doing uh, conservation and research and management. And if every time somebody wanted to know about an animal, they had to go catch them, uh, that, would, that would create quite a burden on them. Um, it's also really expensive. 
Um, one of the one of the examples from my past was uh, we spent almost two hundred thousand dollars catching seventy six pronghorn antelope uh, in thirty six hours, wow. and um, and th- those were strange circumstances. You know, it was there was a lot at stake there, both financially and in terms of that population of of antelope, but. You just don't have the resources to work that way. And so um, Megan Parker, Amy Hurt, Alice Whitelaw, and, and Deb, she was Deb Smith then. She's Deb Willett now. Um, they all four came together, got together with another person you know, Sam Wasser, uh, who's at the University of Washington, and um, Barb Davenport, who is a law enforcement officer. She runs the, um, the dog program for the state of Washington's uh, Department of Corrections. And they all got together and said, hey, dogs can find drugs, dogs can find bombs, what about wildlife? And that's, that was in the mid-90s, and that's when the field was born. And um, it was primarily, you know, it's a little embarrassing that it took us, us biologists so long to figure this out, because here we go running around the landscape looking for carnivores, and they leave little packets of information for other carnivores. And here's this carnivore that's been living with us, you know, by some accounts, maybe as long as 50,000 years. And it took us until the last 15 or 20 to say, hey, <laughs> they can read those messages that those other carnivores are, 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 are leaving all over the place. And they're really good at finding them. So us, us humans, we're a little slow on the uptake that we've learned. <laughs> you know, we like to go in and manipulate and manage. And we think only about our own needs on the whole in terms of how are we going to make wildlife fit into our lifestyle and there we have this dog so um, you had said earlier um, these little packets of information another colleague of mine you might know him um, Tico McNutt and Predator Conservation Trust they do bioboundary work which is exactly what you said using these little scent packages of information to find out what wild dogs are doing and how to contain them so now you're using domestic dogs to make use of these little nature's uh, packages of information. So how, how does this work? How does yeah. – um, there's two questions I have here. What kind of training do the handlers have? So you mentioned there's law enforcement. So we're all familiar with um, like drug detection dogs. But what's the difference in terms of the training for feces de- detection? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned Tico. Megan Parker, who's one of our, our uh, co-founders, did her PhD in Botswana with Tico. Ah. Um, and it was the difficulties of working on wild dogs is one of the things that, that drove her to, to recognizing how useful scat dogs can be. Um, and so the, the, our, our handlers are all trained as, as, as uh, wildlife biologists. Um, <clears throat> but back when they all started, there wasn't really a field here um, um, there wasn't a, a field called uh, anthrozoology, um, but now that that field I- exists, and there's a Carroll College is right here in Montana. They have an anthrozoology program, and it's all about human animal bond and the human animal relationship. And um, and so you know they really the handlers work on both sides of that. They really do have to be good at um, at at understanding their dogs and seeing reading those body cues on their dogs, making sure they're not cueing the dogs with their own body language. And, um, and, and also, they have to be wildlife biologists because they know the, 
the they have to know the natural history of the species they're working with. They need to to be able to identify what it is the dog's finding out in the field. Um, and we do a lot of working with our uh, partners on survey design and things like that too. So you, you again, it's another broad thing that conservation leads us to. Well, it's it's fascinating because it's. What it's really showing and what I hope our listeners are catching on to as you've listened, as they have listened to our wild world, that this truly is an interconnected web. And over the past several months, we've had several guests talking and highlighting this human animal bond and that regardless of the human presence, the animal has a mind and is doing things that it needs to do for its survival. So working dogs for conservation and your handlers bring all that together. So uh, we're going to be heading into a break in just a few minutes. Um, So I understand that your dogs and your teams work all over the world. Uh, Give us just a little bit of the scope of where your dogs work. Well, uh, up to now, our dogs have worked in uh, 18 states here in the United States, and uh, I think we're in 12. We've been in 12 different countries around the world now. Um, and, um, you know, we, as the geography has expanded, so has the, the variety of targets. And what started working mostly on carnivores, um, now we do everything from carnivores to ungulates to uh, reptiles. We we've both find their scats and live individuals sometimes we we prefer to find non-invasively or not find the individuals but sometimes that's all you have to work with and to find we even do invasive plants and and this year we're going to start working on disease as well this is astonishing absolutely astonishing this is opening up so many um broadening the scope and crossing boundaries it's amazing we've seen uh tv documentaries of dogs sniffing out cancer so it's it's an astonishing concept that is going to go a tremendous uh, amount of places so we're going to take a little break um what i'd like is our listeners you can learn more about working dog for conservations their handlers and their dog pack by checking out their website WorkingDogsForConservation.org, all one world, and the people and the dogs are amazing. And on that, stick with us. We'll be right back with Dr. Pete Capolillo. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. 
Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back. We're with Dr. Pete Coppolillo and Working Dogs for Conservation. This is a fascinating project where, or not, not even a project, the, the projects are fascinating, but it's a whole new field that is opening and expanding boundaries. So, Pete, let's, let's talk a little bit about the dogs themselves. Uh, how do you find them? Well, you- the the dogs they're they're the show they're the really the amazing part of the the whole thing, and really they're the most important part. And um, one of the things that makes our organization a little bit different than other uh, working dog um, outfits is that that we source the majority of our dogs are are uh, shelter dogs they're rescues, um, and we do that for a lot of reasons. Um, um, you know, but I, I'd say the the biggest part of it is that it is an ethical one that um, there are a lot of dogs um, in shelters that um, that need need a home, and in fact, the kind of dogs that we work with um, are often the kinds of dogs that never make it out of shelters. Um, they're either euthanized, or if they're in a no kill shelter, they may spend the rest of their lives there. And that's why because is, they're. Why is that? Well, we look for high energy, high drive dogs. Um, a dog that's just so excited to do its job and will do it, you know, for eight hours a day and, and really, really wants to work through difficult conditions and to, to find, um, find these targets. And often that, uh, that kind of crazy is what Amy Hurt, one of our, one of the co-founders calls the right kind of crazy. So you're um, talking about the dog that says, throw me the ball, throw me the ball, throw me the ball over and it, over and over again until the owner has gone crazy and yep. either can't handle this dog or may return it to a shelter or find a place to it. And it's a, it's a high drive dog that needs a job. That's so not exactly only right. are you rescuing dogs and giving them a home, but more importantly, animals need a job. They need that's, to do something. So that's, that's what your dogs do. That's so, exactly right. Is any kind of breed work or what breeds do you prefer? Yep. yep. Well, almost all dogs are physiologically capable of doing it. Um, dogs have a spectacular sense of smell. Um, they, you know, they, they, uh, can detect down to parts per billion. And so they all, scenting is, 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 they're all capable of doing amazing things with their noses. Um, some of the brachiocephalic dogs, the, the ones with the pushed in face, some of those have, have been bred and so overbred that they have compromised olfaction, but, but most of them can do the smelling work. What we really select for is the desire to work. 
the drive. So it's really their behavior, not their 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 smelling or their physiology that we select for. And you know, high drive and just just right sort of size. You know, if they're if they're enormous. Um, these dogs get taken lots of places. You know, they go, they have to be in cars and airplanes and, and they've been in helicopters and, and, uh, we even had to take them on elephant back recently. Um, um, and so you need dogs that are, that are small enough to go these places, um, but big enough to jump over logs and run around in the landscape and, and, and do all that kind of work. So, you know, we really look at our whole pack collectively and and they're individuals too and some of them are 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 good at detail work small areas you know finding like invasive snails in the leaf litter in hawaii for example and others like pepin who's a big belgian malinois you know he's got these big long legs and he just floats over these big mountain landscapes when he's looking for grizzly bear or wolverine or 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 cheater wild dog scat as well so you'd also want not want a dog that's too small no little bitty dogs that you know we do most of our work in the field, um, and so that it would be hard harder for them. Um, you know, there are circumstances we're doing more um, enforcement work now um, with with ivory and bush meat, and smaller dogs can do um, can do that work well. Um, you know, for for places like uh, working in airports, agricultural inspection, and things like that, a safer um, environment where they won't get eaten won't get munched and it's not too hard for them to, you know, and sometimes that's a great advantage. You know, you see the beagles that run along the, the uh, luggage um, carousels, you know, being small really helps them. So it really is about matching individual, individual dogs to the jobs and to their, to their skill set. Well, tell us about some of your dogs. I mean, if you, if our listeners go to workingdogsforconservation.org, there is a place in there that is called Meet the Pack, and you'll get to see all the dogs at work and just, you know, you can see how tremendously happy these animals are. Um, but tell us some about, you know, your, your, I don't want to say favorite dog, but some <laughs> of the special dogs and what kind of things can they find? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the one of the veterans is is Wicket, and she came from uh, Anaconda, just about an hour and a half from from where I am here in Bozeman, Montana. And when when Amy Hurt went over to the to the shelter to look at Wicket and said, "I think you know this dog might be a, a suitable working dog," they said, "No, you you can't be interested in that dog. That dog is crazy." And the funny thing about Wicket now is, I've only known Wicket as an adult, um, and and Wicket's a mellow dog. Wicket's a very pleasant dog to be around. Um, and, and it's because, exactly like you said, she has a job now. And she's amazing. She's trained on 20 different scents. Um, so she finds everything from uh, invasive plants. She's worked on moon bears in, in, uh, in China. She's worked on Cross River Gorilla, the rarest great ape in the world. Um, and, uh, and, you know, here at home, she's, she uh, finds... Invasive weeds, um, and the cool thing about about her is she, she can find the weeds before they flower, which is really important because people like me, even good botanists, have a hard time identifying things before it has flowers. But um, once it has flowers, they can reproduce and set seed, and then you've got you've got to go find new plants. Well, the dogs, you know, Wicket um, and uh, and Seamus are, are really great weed dogs. Um, they can find them when they're just tiny little little sprouts and then they're able to remove that invasive weed before it reproduces and and what we've seen is they're able to knock back um, some of these particularly new infestations so so that's really cool that's so really when cool. you say they the, the 
I'm, I'm going to lead into a quick little question. You, when you're saying they, the dog leads the people, the conservationists, to where this invasive species or something is growing, as you're saying, seeds, so yep. that the, the people can actually go in and go about removing these invasive species. That's exactly right. That's exactly so, right. And one of the cool, I'll tell you a cool story about Seamus. Seamus, he's a border collie, and you know border collies know a lot, and they know best. <laughs> and he, he kept going back to the places where he had previously alerted on, on weeds, and they had been ripped out. And they just thought he's being stubborn, he wants his reward, or maybe there's some residual scent there. And in fact, what happened was, in those same places, the plants resprouted, and and they didn't know this is a particular weed called Dyer's Woad, and they didn't realize that it could re-sprout from a little tiny root fragment. And so Seamus was the one who, who, who taught them that, and now what they do, rather than ripping it out, they'll apply just with um, just a little bit of herbicide just on that individual plant, and then it kills it all the way down to the root. So we joke that you know it was, took a border collie to teach us the biology of the weed <laughs> in order to pull it out. But yes, the dogs generally need people to make conservation happen after they find stuff and and you know that's that's true of their handlers and it's true organizations so we work almost entirely um in partnerships with with other organizations or agencies um who who you know follow up on the on the uh, information that we we generate so um that brings us to uh, another point you said one dog and and you've got how many dogs we have six active dogs right now. Okay, so you said one dog was able to sniff out 20 or 30 different scents. That's astonishing. So how, um, and, and it, you also just mentioned there's an, an extreme importance to the relationship and the trust between the human and the dog, that the dog is telling you something and, and trust that. But how do you train the dogs to find specific scents and not get them confused? Well, the the interesting thing, so Wicket Wicket is trained on twenty cents now, and and, and um, let's see, she was just training this year, so she just learned Asian elephant. So I don't remember if that's number twenty or twenty one, <laughs> but um, there are a lot of strategic decisions that we make in terms of what scents we train an individual dog on, and that's because um, if you're working in a landscape um, and you train them on, say, you know, mule deer. And you come here in the in, in you know our part of the world, Colorado or Montana or wherever, they'd be stopping every you know every fifty meters and 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 alerting. So um, Wicket never works in any one place. Those twenty cents, those twenty target species, are scattered all over the world. So five or six is about the the largest number that they work on in any in any um, part of the world. And the funny thing is that that dogs appear to be able to to look for all of them. All, all of them at once. So, and that's partly just the way their brain and their olfactory um, system works. Um, and we're just starting research on, on, on why that is and whether it's actually true that they don't um, degrade. But all of our experience suggests that that's true. So they're and multitasking. They're multitasking, yeah, and it and it seems that we don't do so well at that. So if I tell you to go out and look for dollar bills, you're, you've got a search image in your head. 
but if those dollar bills are folded in a funny way or rolled up into little tubes or something, you'll, you'll be less effective at finding them. And that's not really true for dogs. Um, you can't mask a scent from a dog. So this myth of, you know, drug dealers hiding cocaine in, in coffee and things like that doesn't really work. You know, the only thing you can do is, is irritate a dog's nose so badly that it can't smell. Um, other than that, the, the dogs will be able to smell it. And so, so, you, so you can have a dog, let's say, so you've, you've got a dog that is trained in several scents and these scents are around in a specific area so that the dog's not getting confused, like you said, alerting at every 50 meters or so. So let's say you're sending him out to look for an invasive weed or a plant, but he happens to come across an Amur leopard. How do you <laughs> deal with that? Uh, they would alert. They would alert just the same, and that's part of what the handler um, the handler is there to to do. And you know, Wicket's another good example on that one. Wicket worked on moose uh, up in the Adirondacks, and moose are an interesting case there because they were gone, and now they're recolonizing from the north um, in the Adirondacks, and and they just didn't know how many there were or where they were, and so uh, it was difficult for them to to figure out what they needed to 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 be protected and to keep um, recovering. And so uh, uh, Wicket was up in that part of the world um, and um, and with another dog named Camus. Um, and they worked on on um, on Adirondack moose all summer. And then they came back and worked on that Centennials project in the Centennial Mountains, which are on the border between Idaho and Montana. And um, if you've ever spent time in that part of the world, you'll know that there are lots of moose <laughs> in that in that landscape. And so both Wicket and Camus at that point in their lives and careers were, were are quite experienced dogs. And so their their um, their handlers just didn't reward them when they they would stop at moose and and their handlers just didn't reward them and within a couple of days they realized okay this isn't a we're not doing moose now and that's one of the things that veteran dogs are able to do they learn how to learn very quickly so you can you can introduce a scent and a dog will figure that out in in a matter of minutes um, it appears that they as they the longer they work a scent the more um, sensitive they are to it. And so their threshold for being able to detect it will go down. But that's one of the things that's so great about having these, these uh, veteran dogs is they're very experienced and, and they can deal with a lot of different um, issues like that. And sometimes, you know, working on very rare species, we may not have good training samples. And then they'll need to, um, they'll need to adjust when they get to the field. So uh, Pepin and Wicket were just in Myanmar uh, helping, helping uh find occupied Asian elephant habitat. Um, but as you know, Asian elephants are also uh, semi-domesticated there. So there were domestic elephants around, and they had to learn to ignore the domestic elephant scat and only pay attention to wild elephant scat. And, and that's something that you know experienced dogs and handlers really have to do together. So a light bulb epiphany moment just went off in my head. These dogs are, are not finding just one animal they can track multiple animals. That's exactly right. That's so exactly right. So you're looking for moose and you've got X quantity of moose someplace. These dogs can tell you that this moose is not the same through sniffing the feces, correct? Mm-hmm. Or, or the scent trail, that this moose is a different one than that moose. How do they tell the handler that it's a different moose? 
Well, it, that's an interesting. It's an interesting prod, um, you know, problem to work on. Most of our dogs, we train them on a species, and scent matching is a is a technique that other dogs will do. And um, and you can show them one individual and say, "Find me that individual," and then out of a lineup, they'll alert just on that individual. And then what they're telling you in that context is, "This is the one that matches." Wow. And every dog can alert in a different way. We train ours to do a passive alert. They sit or lie down. And that's so that they don't disturb the samples. But that's exactly the cancer dogs you mentioned. That's uh-huh. exactly what they're doing as well. A series of scents are put are are brought past them, and they alert when they smell the one that that um, that uh, either matches or or that they've been trained on. Some of them are trained in the same way that our dogs are trained as well. So they're amazing. I mean, uh, 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 dogs are able to identify an individual. And you can train an individual on, say, hair or, or um, a hair sample or a tissue sample, and then they'll be able to identify the same individual from their urine. And the truth is we just don't know how they do it. They, they just do it. I <laughs> guess just the doing. truth is, is we don't understand how many scents we leave behind. That's um, exactly Whether right. it's a human being, uh, everybody's recognized or, or had an experience of watching a film where they send a bloodhound after sniffing a, some, uh, a missing child's piece of, piece of clothing and find that dog or, or find that child. I guess, guess what we don't understand is, and this is where a whole new field of research is opening up, what scent means and the the scent the information that is being transferred through scent and you know that those packets like in terms of bioboundary work that Tico's working on what scent message has information and what is noise You're so exactly and right. and how amazing it is that the dogs uh in your case and working dogs for conservation can tell the difference between yep. the noise the background the static and what it's being and what it's being trained or trained to look for it's yep. just astonishing so once again we're going to head into a break here shortly so our listeners can learn more about working dogs for conservation at working dogs for conservation.org and visit um, and meet the pack and, and learn some of the latest news of what's going on and learn about what they're doing and some of the projects which we'll get into when we come back after the break um, so you had mentioned something we have about a minute to break that they the dog after a while gets I'm not sure the word you use fatigued on, on a particular scent how long can a dog work uh either on that scent through its lifetime or specifically on a project in in the field time-wise? Oh, well, they they actually don't. The longer they're on scents, the more sensitive they are to them, which is which is a good thing. Um, and they, as far as we know, they keep them forever. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, That's just and we can amazing. talk about duty cycles after the break. Okay, duty cycles, we're going to do that. So stick <laughs> with us. We're with Dr. Pete Coppolillo, and we'll be right back after the break. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The Wild Effect. 
It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. We're with Dr. Pete Coppolillo and Working Dogs for Conservation. And right before the break, we started, uh, before the break, we were talking about how fascinating and capable these dogs are uh, of so much more than, let's say, when we're looking at our uh, domestic dog and our pet and he's running around, that they have a whole lot more going on. So you were talking about, we were talking about duty cycles, um, that, that's a term, and we were talking about how long or if the dog gets fatigued. So explain a little bit about duty cycles. Well, we, we, uh, we want to make sure that, that we don't, you know, run our dogs into the ground, both because, um, you know, we invest a lot in our dogs, but, you know, more importantly, because we don't want to, to, you know, work them too hard or make it, um, uh, um, you, you know, because you know, be cruel to them or yeah, anything like that. Um, you know, the truth is most of these dogs um, would, would love to work until they dropped. And so we need to, we need to cut it off for them. And, um, and so in terms of a daily duty cycle, that really depends on the terrain and the, and the weather. Uh, heat is, a, is an, is an issue. You know, if we're working in Africa, they wear cool coats or just to help it, you know, uh, it's like a, like a cape that they wear that, evaporates moisture as they as they go because as you know dogs can't sweat um, and we'll keep them on a shorter duty cycle they'll be usually done by 9 30 or 10 o'clock in the morning um, in you know up here in Montana if it's in a relatively flat landscape um, they can work all day um, but it's intense it's it's mentally intense work particularly if they're looking for multiple scents so what we also do is is we cycle the days that they work um, so they will do three days on and then have a day off so they don't then, burn out. That's right. And then we do two days on and then a day off. And then they start that cycle over again. Wow. And, and what we found is that in terms of their detection distances and their, 
willingness to work and whatnot, um, and and just their physical um, their physical well being because um, they're they're keen to work. They really love it, um, and so they'll jump over logs and pound through bushes and and um, you know they can tear themselves up if 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 uh, if if you if you don't keep an eye on them. Um, and that, so that we, leads to a question: yeah. How do you keep them safe in the field? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one of the probably the most important uh, thing to keep them safe is obedience. Um, so these are high energy dogs. They're not your traditional family dog that sleep at your feet, um, but we do demand that they, that they're very obedient and um, having good recall, coming immediately when you call them, is one. And um, drop is another really important command. You know, to lay down right where they are, right then. And I'll give you an example. Uh, Rio, who's one of the founding dogs with the organization, uh, Deb Willett was working Rio in the San Joaquin Valley, finding San Joaquin kit fox, an endangered species. And she saw uh, a rattlesnake between her and Rio. And Rio's natural instinct was to come to her, and she yelled, drop. And he dropped. He stopped right where he was. And she was able to walk around the other way so that she and Rio were on the same side of the snake so he didn't come across. So it was a great example where obedience really um, saved the day. Wow. We've got about 10 minutes left. So we've got, there's a couple more questions that I'd like to get into that I think are really important. Sure. One is, um, we're hearing a lot about shelter dogs and high play drive, overdrive dogs. If somebody wanted to um, find out more about how they could get their dog into a program, what would they do? Well, um, you, you know, there isn't a, a sort of a, a broad program for, for uh, people to participate in, in, in conservation detection. But one of the things that um, there isn't yet, maybe someday we'll get there. I would love it. But... Um, um, one of the things that really helps, um, you know, high drive dogs is to have a job, and and a lot of times they're they're hyper or crazy or 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 uh, you know any variety of descriptors of it um, because they're not sort of challenged mentally, and um, there are great classes now things like it's called Noseworks um, that dogs learn to solve little problems, um, and uh, you know the, the it's 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 like an extension of these. Um, Pebblies or Kongs or whatever that you put the, the treats inside. They've got to work at it to figure it out and then, and, and it gives them something to do. And doing that kind of work, um, scent work that where they go to a class and they learn how to learn new scents and then they hide them for them and, and those dogs learn to search. Those are a great, um, way for a, a handler and a, and the dog, uh, to bond. Just regular obedience training. So it really sounds helps. like so, so. It sounds like something that a person, as you were saying, who has a high overdrive dog. You know, they come home from work and they've got this boundless energy dog waiting for them, and they know it's going to explode um, and be all over the place with excitement when they come home. So, if the person takes some of these classes or takes their dog or finds some research and information, and once again, you can find out more at Working Dogs for Conservation and just get some information. You, our listener, can give your dog a job to do. It doesn't have to become a conservation detection dog, but you and your dog can have a better relationship because you're helping your dog get have something to do so that when you go off to work, you can have your dog have a job to do all day. Does that sound like something that people could do? I think it's a great thing and it and it and 
you'd be amazed at how much it helps dogs' behavior when they've got something like that. So yeah. you'd mentioned a program called Noseworks? Noseworks is a popular one. Um, uh, Scentwork is the general term for, for a lot of them. I, and there are, I think there are a lot of classes cropping up all over the country. And so a that- lot of the dogs that do well at those can go on to do things like be a search and rescue volunteer. And, and, and there are a lot of active communities in, in situations like that, too. Wow, that's amazing. So that leads into, we are hearing a lot more about this kind of work. And um, where do you think this field will go into the future? Like over the next, let's say, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Where do you think it can go? Well, the one thing I'm sure of is that it will expand. Um, It, it, you know, er, in the early days, we found a lot of bear scat. (laughs) And then it was, you know, slow incremental movement out to carnivores. And now we really work on everything um, from, from, you know, plants to invertebrates. Uh, I mentioned earlier, we're just starting to work on disease. We, we, just sent dogs to Zambia to do the first ever um, uh, snare detection and removal program. They can detect um, snares? Wire snares, yeah. So are they sending the wire or are they sending the people? Well, again, we, we, you know, I, we don't actually know, um, but what I can tell you is that they can tell the difference between a wire snare um, that came from Zambia and a wire, just wire in a fence that's here in Montana because that's how they were trained. They're probably detecting a little bit of human scent on the snare. Um, and, um, and, you know, now we're working on poisons, all sorts of things. So we're seeing this expansion. You know, it used to be just ecological monitoring for low-density species. And now we've added these, these threats um, the, the threats to wildlife, which, you know, are everything from snares to poisons to, to, you know, you name it. And increasingly, unfortunately, because of the ivory crisis going on, we're doing more and more, uh, enforcement and, um, and, and, and stopping wildlife trafficking. So sniffing, um, doing things like vehicle searches and containers and things like that as one part of that, that chain to try to, to address the, the, the ivory problem so i often say that you know when i started doing conservation camera traps you know trail cameras and whatnot they were they were kind of a novelty and everybody had one and you saw what wandered through camp at night um but they weren't widely used and that field matured um thanks to largely to ulas karanth and 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 jim nichols um they developed statistics for using camera traps and now they're a real central research tool and people um use them have camera trapping arrays they can do density estimates things like that that's where i see working dogs going in the next 15 years to going from uh you know a, a kind of a novel thing that you do when you've exhausted all your options to a much more broadly um, used tool because more and more, I mean, the laboratory techniques that we can do on SCAT, we can now tell reproductive status. We can identify individuals. We can know what they've been eating. And that's even true for, for herbivores now. They do something called microhistology, looking at tiny fragments of plants in the pellets, in the SCAT pellets. So it's, you know, more and more 
there's more you can do with SCAT. The cost is going down. So it's just a, a, a very rapidly expanding field. So that, you know, the only thing I'm sure of is there'll be more of it. And, and I think there'll be a lot more surprises in terms of what dogs are capable of. Well, as we've learned today, I mean, the uh, amount of information and the astonishing capability uh, of the dogs that you've told us about today is amazing. So the one big thing we also have to understand is conservation and research and training these dogs and traveling the, you know, traveling them, getting them to these places takes money. Um, so people, can they donate to your organization? Yes. Well, thank you for, for, for reminding us of that. That's, that's true. We, um, we need uh, it, it. It costs money to train a dog. It costs money to house a dog. Um, you know, we give them a, a full retirement, even after they're done working. They live with their their trainer, who's their handler in the field, and and um, and all of that uh, uh, does cost money. So, uh, on our website, there's a support us link. Um, if any of your your listeners are um, are uh, Android users, they they might know Google One Today. We're on One Today, so we come up there, um, and uh, and and you know the website. You can either send a check or do it online in a in the normal ways. So thank you for, for asking that. Well, absolutely. It's one of the points that uh, we make on, uh, I, I, I work to get across on our wild world that um, there is so much going on in the field of conservation. You've just opened up a whole new world and an avenue of a technology, even though a low technology that is going to expand into the world of conservation because it is so non-invasive, but nonetheless, it does cost money. So um, when people ask, where does the money go? Pete has just given us a fabulous outline of what happens. You're not just paying for a dog. You're not just giving $15. Dogs don't need the money. They're not going to the store. They're not buying their food. But they need the, the organization, conservation, and the field and the places where the dogs work need the funding to make these things happen. So please visit workingdogsforconservation.org to learn more about uh, Pete's work, more about the dogs, visit the dogs. Do you have an adopt-a-dog kind of program where somebody could say, um, so to speak, they get a picture and um, they know that their funding is going to help this dog in, in the field? You know, we, we haven't we haven't had we've we've only got six active dogs right now, so we haven't had that kind of program. But I think that's a great idea. I think we ought to, and you know, because people love knowing what individuals are up to, and we try to keep everybody up to date on our on our Facebook page, and we're on Google Plus, and 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 we tweet. Believe it or not, um, the dogs don't. We do it for them, but to try <laughs> to keep everybody up to date on on their movements and what they're and what they're doing. So once again, everybody, uh, check out Working Dogs for Conservation. Uh, you can find them on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, you can help support the dogs and help support the handlers and help make conservation happen on the ground in a very non-invasive way and a very exciting way. And uh, as Pete had said, this is a, a field that is going to only expand. And the ramifications and the... Um, just the mind-boggling openness that this show has opened up for me, I can imagine what it's opened up for our listeners, that 
this is this is astonishing what dogs are capable of. So next time you're watching your natural history and a documentary on the ability of dogs in their noses, watch it because that's what we're talking about here. The amazing capability of dogs, that wonderful little wet nose that comes up and pokes you in the face in the morning and says good morning. That dog is capable of a whole lot of things. So it would be worth it to give your dog a job give him something to do find some of these classes um if your dog is a little over hyper than than you can handle there's a way you can work with that so pete we've got a couple minutes left is there anything we didn't cover that you would really like uh our listeners to to know about uh you know i think i think really the take-home message is just that that Dogs do amazing things, and and that we are just really starting to scratch the surface of of what they're capable of. And when we take dogs, this this old old technology, they've lived with us for tens of thousands of years, and we combine it with the cutting edge in terms of laboratory techniques. It's a really really powerful uh, partnership, and we can we can make uh, conservation more effective and more efficient and and even more ethical. Um, by by doing it. So it's exciting to be at the front end of a, of a young field, and I encourage everybody to keep an eye on the field. Absolutely. And just a little note, when you're talking to your dog, remember that cruelty and abuse also has an effect on the relationship with you and your animal. It's a lot easier to be working with your animal and understanding the capabilities of your animal as opposed to saying, oh, my stupid dog. We found today that that is not true. So um, I'd like to thank you all for joining our wild world. So next time you take your dog for a walk, see what he's attracted to, follow a scent, and join us next week. And thank you, Pete. It's been a great show. It's been fun. Thanks, Ellie. And thanks for everything with the, you do with the podcast and, and Wild Eyes and everything else, too. Oh, well, you're welcome. I'm, it's, it's a point to just get people connected, connect the dots, and help understand what we can do and how we can make a difference and how your dog can make a difference. So until next week, this is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Hi, I'm Ed Krell, 